Welcome to the 31st episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Geneviève Almusny from Institut Curie in Paris. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Geneviève, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD in microbiology at the University Pierre et Marie Curie in 1988, under the supervision of Marcel Mechali. I'm sorry if I don't pronounce the French names correctly. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. That's perfect. It's Marcel Mechali, just as you said. <laughs> Very good. Then from 1988 to 1989, and also from 1991 to 1993, you went to the United States to work as a postdoc in the research center of the NIH in Bethesda, in the laboratory of Professor Ellen Wolf. Then in 1994, you returned to Paris as a junior group leader at Institut Curie. Then in 2000, you became a group leader of the Chromatin Dynamics team at Institut Curie. And in 2013, you took over the direction of uh, research at the same institute, Institut Curie, and became the third woman to hold this position until 2018. And you are still at the Institut Curie today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? And was this the plan all along? Well, that's uh, always uh, a tricky question um, because uh, there's what you remember and uh, what uh, you think <laughs> happened. <laughs> and so, so honestly, I think I was just simply uh, very, very curious Uh, uh, and uh, I just wanted to understand how things uh, work. And so this is the same with your children. They always ask questions about just anything. And uh, um, looking at nature, uh, for example, uh, the, the tadpole inspired me, like Boris Vian said, <laughs> uh, with the maître nageur, so the swimming pool teacher that inspired uh, this uh, particular woman in a crazy song. I was inspired by tadpole. That's perhaps <laughs> the reason, just to see how they uh, develop, change, and the metamorphosis. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And then uh, reading uh, um, books from uh, Rostand, uh, who was looking at uh, amphibians, uh, that was also uh, something that I thought was uh, just amazing with the variety of uh, behavior in nature. So that's um, sort of perhaps how... Uh, I got uh, interested, and then it's just um, the way it goes. You uh, have at school wonderful teachers uh, that can inspire you, uh, uh, showing uh, again the, the beauty of nature and science, and uh, science is beautiful. So how can you resist? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. So it's, again, a, a question of mentors along the way, showing you uh, the beauty of, of uh, topics. Absolutely, yeah. When we come to your science, uh, what I got from your website, from your, your lab website, the main area of your research is to unriddle how chromatin is assembled and how it, this organization is propagated and maintained in development. Um, the assembly process of chromatin is quite a complex process and it requires different factors. Can you maybe give us a quick overview over the process of this process, over the process of chromatin <laughs> assembly? <laughs> 
Yes, uh, uh, indeed. Uh, uh, this this is an area that uh, my lab has been uh, really interested in uh, for uh, quite a long time. And really, uh, the way we've approached it is to try and understand things from the basic unit, uh, the nucleosome. How do you assemble uh, the particle, uh, putting in place the histones, and then how this goes all the way up to higher order structure. And uh, in that context, it's uh, looking at particular uh, region in the genome, such as uh, centromere or also pericentromere, heterochromatin in this region. So, so the, the aspect related to uh, the basic unit, so how you deposit histones, um, was really, uh, to me, um, absolutely fascinating because histones are, are small protein, highly charged, and they love DNA. So in principle, you don't need anything for them to go and stick to DNA, but that has to happen in a proper way. And uh, in fact, um, histones uh, are, are constantly under control. So they have chaperone. And so the French word uh, for chaperone uh, uh, is um, uh, meaning, uh, it's a term that has been used in falconry as a hood to put on the head of birds of prey to prevent them from uh, flying and uh, in going in undesired place. And so basically I do see the functioning of this factor, the histone chaperone, together with the histone in the same way. So they guide them and help to bring them uh, at the right place or to get them off the place. And so this is how we um, looked into this uh, and uh, we identified particular chaperone that were dedicated to particular histone variant. And so that was uh, certainly, um, I would say, uh, one of uh, the major uh, excitement uh, in, in the lab when we um, actually realized that there was some kind of uh, uh, directed control. So you would not necessarily put anything anywhere uh, at random. And so using uh, biochemistry, uh, as an initial tool. So we used uh, um, epitope-tagged um, H3 variants to pull out the factors that were associated to them. And so the trick was uh, to find factors that could be associated to them uh, while they were sort of free, when they were not uh, into chromatin, so that it could give you a hint for uh, factors that could be important to escort them and then bring them without being necessarily part of the final product, that is, the nucleosome. And so uh, we found in this way uh, um, a particular uh, chaperone uh, for uh, the replicative variant, uh, H3.1 and H3.2, a uh, variant of uh, histones that are uh, important uh, during replication to provide the pool that is necessary when you double the whole genome uh, during replication and uh, you have to assemble again uh, into chromatin the material. And so the chaperone we found, CAF1, uh, was uh, key in that particular process. So that was uh, the first one. And then we did the same thing uh, for H3.3. But to be very honest, I have to tell you the story about how that came about. Because it's not as simple as, oh, you go, you have the idea, you do it, and it works. Uh, it's, it's not like that. There's a lot of things that uh, happen uh, also because of uh, uh, meeting uh, with people and, uh, and unexpected uh, approach. 
And so, in fact, the reality is that uh, I had been working on the histone and chromatin assembly using in vitro system for quite a while. And um, I had found these factors. So, so, sorry to interrupt you. This was in the beginning of the 2000s, right? When you started your own lab and, and got started, right? Yes, yes. And so I, I knew about um, this, um, these factors uh, at the early days, but not their specific uh, role with the variant. So there was this factor, CAF1, that was key for uh, helping to assemble chromatin in a manner that is coupled to DNA synthesis. And then uh, there was the other factor, uh, hurry, uh, that was key for assembling uh, chromatin independently of DNA synthesis. And one day uh, I got a call from uh, a colleague, uh, Pat Nakatani, who had in, in fact um, designed a series of uh, epitope-tagged um, histone variants. All of them, basically. And he was just trying to uh, pull down the complex uh, with, uh, with his um, epitope-tagged uh, protein. But uh, he did not quite understand uh, what he got. Uh, and so he called me and said, well, um, I've taken uh, H3 and um, uh, I don't find uh, CAF1 in the complex. Uh, and according to what you have found, I should find it. And so uh, I said, uh, yes, but maybe things work differently. But which, which, uh, which, uh, which construct uh, did you use? Which A3 did you use for this? And then he told me, uh, and in fact, it was not A3.1 that he used. It was A3.3. And so uh, in A3.3, he didn't find CAF1. And so uh, when he said that to me, I said, well, Maybe you should try to look if you find Hooray into this complex. And so um, he sent me uh, the complex. We did the blot. We found Hooray, and there was no CAF1. And then I said, well, now you should do the complex with H3.1, <laughs> and then you'll get it. Yeah. And that's how it worked. And so that was quite an amazing uh, uh, moment when we just got that at hand. <laughs> So was this, that the first time you realized that there were different uh, chaperones for different histone variants? Exactly. So that was uh, together with uh, Hideaki Tagami and uh, Pat Nakatani and uh, Dominique Regale in, uh, in my lab. So that was quite a, a, an exciting time uh, when we realized that there was this sort of uh, distinct uh, complex. And then, of course, uh, starting with that, we realized that there was a whole lot of things we could learn from uh, analyzing this complex, looking at the other type of uh, chaperone that could be part of this complex, and then sort of uh, go back and uh, understand the network of interaction, and also to look at other variants. That's how uh, we went on to the centromeric variant, Senpei in mammals. And that one was a complicated one, but uh, that was how we identify the um, the chaperone for Senpei uh, called HJERP, and that was another uh, big blast. But I remember that was also something where uh, at the beginning we didn't understand anything. Yeah. So, so just, just uh, I want to come to HJERP and, and the Central America part uh, a little bit later. But um, how did you in the beginning? I mean, MASPEC was not available, right? How did you do that? Was it just immunoblotting, uh, IPing uh, stuff, and then? Uh, 
plotting stuff because you were later on you also uh, teamed up with Axel Imhoff and then maybe when Masbeck got available you got into this right so yes absolutely uh, so uh, at the beginning uh, well we we were using a lot uh, antibodies and so these are, are quite uh, important resources uh, to identify in the pull down material uh, the component uh, of interest And uh, then uh, we went on and went and developed further the mass spec uh, aspect as so, well. So these immuno approaches, they, they limit your capabilities, right? Because you need to know what you're looking for because you need the antibody, right? Did you always know, I mean, for, for uh, CAF1 and for what was the other one now, HERA? Yeah, right. um, did you have the antibodies at your hands or did you need to make them by your own? No, at the time we had uh, the antibodies uh, uh, available, uh, and uh, so we could we we could do that. But the mass spec analysis enabled us to identify other things for which we didn't have uh, necessarily antibodies, and then we made antibodies, or we could uh, purchase them <laughs> when they existed. Uh, and in some cases, you bump into things that have been identified for other purposes but turn out to be key in the process uh, you're looking into and have a role in a context that was not uh, anticipated. Uh, when you teamed up with Axel Imloff, you also looked at histone PTMs uh, on yes. the variants. Um, what did you see there? Do they change when histones get assembled into nucleosomes and into chromatin or are they there and, and it's just what it is? Absolutely. So this uh, aspect of uh, looking at the changes in the PTM uh, over time from the time histone are synthesized uh, till they are incorporated into chromatin was also uh, uh, really fascinating. So we tried to analyze uh, what type of modification we could find on the different types of variant by isolating uh, the um, histone either in the free form or in the nucleosomal form to see what was free and what was in a nucleosomal form and also combined with a pulse chase experiment. And we found very interesting uh, pattern whereby, um, for example, a certain modification we could only see once the histones were incorporated into chromatin. For example, uh, K27 uh, trimethylation, we didn't see at all uh, in the soluble fraction, but we saw it in chromatin. Um, methylation in general uh, was... Uh, um, mostly found into chromatin, excepted monomethyl on K9 that we could also see in the uh, soluble uh, pool. And then, uh, well, typical mark that we could see in uh, the soluble pool were acetylation mark on H4, uh, K5 and 12. The dual labeling was quite uh, um, uh, striking as a, a typical uh, hallmark of the Uh, newly synthesized histones prior to deposition. And then on, uh, we could look at uh, all the detail. And it was uh, really great to have this uh, interaction with um, Axel because uh, that required, of course, um, specific ways of analyzing the mass spec data. Um, did But you we see could confirm by, by, uh, with uh, some of the antibodies <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, did you see any pattern? Is it just active marks that are uh, present on the soluble forms and they get like modified to inactive forms when they are in chromatin or is it just random or is it uh, due to the 
nucleosomes being substrates or treated differently from the enzymes that put the marks there? What do you think is, is the reason for that? Well, I, I wouldn't talk about active mark in the soluble and uh, repressive or, or repressive and active in, in, in the, the, the chromatin. It, it's, not, it's not like that. And I think that uh, we have to be cautious not to uh, sort of have an oversimplistic view about the marks uh, because the modification can be uh, seen and used uh, for different things. So in addition to uh, transcription, when we talk about active or repressed, uh, they also uh, important uh, for uh, some aspects that are more related to dynamics of a region, uh, to uh, function related to DNA replication, to repair, or uh, other um, aspect of uh, the maintenance of um, genome integrity. So I think we have to be cautious with that. Having said that, what I just want to say is, uh, I mentioned a typical mark that you can see prior to deposition, and some that you don't see uh, uh, when you are in the soluble fraction, or at least you cannot detect much. And so assuming that that is a good argument, but you see them very clearly in the chromatin. So it's not a problem of not being able to detect things. So in that respect, as I said, what you find uh, in the um, pre-replicated form is uh, acetylation on H4, 5, and 12. And then there's also uh, some of uh, the uh, H3K9 monometyl uh, that you can see in the soluble uh, fraction, but trimethyl uh, K9 you only uh, detect into uh, chromatin. K27 we didn't see any methylation mm -hmm. in soluble, only into chromatin. So I think we could go on with that. Uh, and so, so there's definitely a particular pattern. And work with uh, uh, Alejandra Loyola, a postdoc from my lab, she has been exploring in much more details the whole thing from uh, uh, the ribosome where the histones are synthesized up to uh, their incorporation and potentially eviction to look at how different type of mark can be uh, imposed uh, uh, along the along the way. So that's a, a very uh, interesting uh, aspect. Uh, and I was glad to see Alejandra um, developing her own thing uh, on this aspect after her time uh, in my lab. It's great to, to see how people um, go on and with their own ideas. Um, you then also went on to investigate how nucleosome, nucleosomes are reassembled after DNA replication. And this was uh, done with uh, a paper. The first author was Anja Groth. She also has her own group now in, in, in Denmark. Um, so how does the replication for progression, so the, the DNA replication, uh, depend on the histone supply and demand, so the availability of, of uh, histones in general? Yes, uh, that has been also a fantastic time. Uh, it was very exciting to uh, uh, work on uh, these uh, aspects together uh, with Anya uh, and uh, also um, an amazing uh, PhD student at the time, uh, Armel Corpe. And, and so uh, basically uh, the idea uh, at the time uh, for us was to try and understand how you can uh, um, progress with the replication fork to pass through nucleosome ahead of the fork and then deal with both recycling the parental histones behind the fork 
And given the fact that you duplicate uh, things, you also have to bring new histones. So the idea was that there must be a means uh, to sort of coordinate events so that you restore a proper nucleosomal density after the passage of uh, the fork. And so in this respect, of course, we had uh, the idea with CAF1 for the new deposition, but we were wondering what happens with the old histones. And so in this respect, the fact that we had uh, identified uh, in these complexes ASF1 as another chaperone for histones that was not particularly specific to um, any of the variant was triggering for us uh, the idea that perhaps it had to help with handling what was ahead of uh, the fork. And so uh, this is uh, sort of how uh, we came into uh, this approach to look at how uh, it was uh, uh, potentially uh, possible to consider ways of coordinating the fork progression and the recycling of um, histones. And uh, ASF1 turned out to be uh, a key factor in this process. So that was a very exciting <laughs> entry point. <laughs> yeah. So you then went on and, and uh, yeah, I saw some papers in Mol Cell in, in, in the early 2010s. And uh, yeah, you focus on H3 and H4 in these processes. Why is H3 and H4 such so important in those processes and H2A and H2B don't seem to, at least in your work, does not uh, be, is not mentioned? Well, uh, it, it is true uh, that, of course, the nucleosome does need uh, all of them. And yes. so, uh, <laughs> it, would be, it would be a mistake to say, well, uh, just care only about one thing. But uh, when you do uh, experiment, you cannot necessarily uh, uh, look at everything. And so we decided to focus more on H3, H4 for a very simple reason is that uh, H2A, H2B dynamics, uh, as far as we knew, was uh, much more, um, uh, how, how to, to formulate it properly, uh, was uh, much more pronounced throughout all the cell cycle. And so there's a big exchange of H2A and H2B all the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we were under the impression that uh, the core, uh, well, the kernel part of um, the um, um, nucleosome uh, particle with uh, H3H4 would be uh, stronger Uh, part to look into in the the aspect of how to deal with it in a manner that would require more assistance. But there's assistance as well for H2A and H2B. And we did. Uh, so you you mean when we say we didn't care about H2A and I H2B. I didn't say you we didn't care. <laughs> just say that in those papers in 2011, we no. there was just H3 and H4 in the titles. And that's what I looked at. So <laughs> It is true. But we also looked at, uh, at H2AZ uh, later on uh, in uh, some of our work. So uh, just to say that uh, there are dynamics that can be different. And for us to look at the dynamics associated with replication, we felt it would be easier to start with H384. Sure, yeah. That and, was the reason. Yeah, And then you, you also, uh, yeah, in this uh, small cell paper from 2011, you came across the histone chaperone NSAP. Um, how does that work in this whole um, replication fork area? <laughs> Well, so the, this, this is uh, going back to what I was uh, saying earlier on. So there's really, um, how to say, 
a network of uh, chaperones, like you can compare with the social network, all the things you're co contacting with. And uh, NASP uh, was uh, a chaperone that we had found as uh, associated with the complex at some point. And we wanted to understand and replace its function with respect to um, the cell cycle and uh, the usage uh, of the histone during the cell cycle. And so we, we wanted to see how uh, it was connected to the other chaperone. And so the connection went through uh, ASF1 and so was more upstream. And so this is how we figured out that it was important in participating in controlling the free, uh, or I should say not free because the histones are never free, <laughs> the soluble pool uh, of histones. And, uh, and so uh, that was also, I, 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 I like that because this idea of the soluble pool of histones is something that is um, actually dear to my heart because before becoming a part of nucleosome and into chromatin, they also have a life uh, in a soluble form. And that can be important for what happens next. And so uh, considering what uh, is going on with the soluble pool is key. And uh, NASP uh, is important uh, in that respect. And um, also it is important uh, in the context of a uh, situation when there's uh, damage and stress uh, to mobilize uh, or to um, um, control the fraction that may be sent to uh, degradation uh, for H3 and H4. And that was uh, nice work from um, Adam Cook at the time, who spent uh, quite some time uh, banging his head on <laughs> how that was working. So speaking of a uh, different life of histones, I mean, there was a paper like two or three weeks ago where they uh, yeah, said that histones might have a role in the copper pathway or something. Uh, so there might be different rows of, or a secret life of histones all along. So. <laughs> No, it's true. I thought this was absolutely fascinating to see uh, this aspect of uh, some kind of a, an, uh, another uh, enzymatic uh, type of function, uh, whereas uh, histone have been seen so far mostly as a break uh, to participate in organizing uh, the, the genome. But they are more than that, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> So coming back to the centromeres, uh, I said that I want to come back to this later on. So um, yeah, you also went on to characterize the chromatin on centromeres and pericentromeric heterochromatin, and it's linked also to cancer, to disease. Um, so what what is the role of chromatin at the centromeres uh, in cancer, and which type of cancers may be most affected here? Well, so this is a kind of a big question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, one step at a time. <laughs> so, Uh, with respect to uh, characterizing uh, chromatin at uh, centromere, so there's uh, the uh, most uh, centric part where you have these uh, centromeric variants, SENPE, that uh, uh, attracted our attention. So how do you define this region uh, that then uh, becomes the point where you have the kinetochore formation that enables the segregation of chromosome? Uh, the importance of a particular histone variant, SENPE, also called uh, deviant because it's the most uh, 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 
distinct uh, uh, variant uh, in the H3 family, so quite a different uh, uh, histone, was, was really puzzling to us. Uh, and also uh, because what was quite remarkable about this variant is that contrary to what we had been thinking for the other H3 variant, where we focused on DNA replication for their deposition, the fact is that uh, with respect to uh, Senpe, it is deposited outside S phase. And so mm. that was uh, quite fascinating. And uh, in fact, uh, this is where um, we identify this uh, other chaperone, H GERP, that is key for the deposition of Senpe in late mitosis G1. And it is uh, truly here because of the sharp eye of uh, Hélène Dunleavy uh, that we made this discovery because um, she uh, was um, looking at uh, the complexes and had found in the soluble fraction associated with Senpe this factor that we didn't know what it was. It was called uh, in the data bank uh, FLEG1 at the time, and also HGERP in one paper. And so I thought, what, what is this? And, um, and then it was just a factor associated uh, with uh, Senpei in this soluble fraction. And so she went on and did uh, 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 siRNA to look at uh, what would happen. And she also uh, tagged it and uh, was looking uh, at the cells. And what was really remarkable is when she figured out that the problem uh, she could uh, detect and pinpoint in uh, Senpei localization was in that time window in late mitosis G1. And so if she hadn't looked carefully, we, we wouldn't see anything. <laughs> and then we deepened the thing, and that's how we could uh, identify uh, this factor. And that was at the same time that uh, Don Falls in Don Cleveland's lab was uh, coming from a different angle and got exactly the same thing. So that was also quite, quite fun, because I remember we were at a Gordon conference, and uh, Don Falls uh, had a poster where he said he had identified a key factor for Senpei deposition. He wasn't giving any name and showing things. And I was, uh, we just had our data with Hélène. And so I talked to him and I said, well, um, maybe we could exchange and uh, <laughs> see whether we have found the same thing. That would be quite uh, nice. And so we uh, decided to set up... Um, Skype uh, together with uh, Don Cleveland and uh, bam, that was the same uh, factor. So we were both feeling reassured it was likely to be uh, uh, the right one. And uh, we went on and uh, finalized uh, our work uh, and uh, that uh, led us to back-to-back uh, -back publication uh, at the time. And uh, that has opened up a number of things because then there's the aspect you were making with uh, the connection to cancer. And uh, this is um, quite um, interesting because there's a, an overexpression of uh, Senpei and HRP that is observed very uh, frequently in many cancers. So it's not just in one specific type of cancer, but what is really coming across is that it's mostly in the most aggressive type of cancer. And so, uh, well, Gary Carpen had seen that as well. And there's also some aspect related to how the cancer will respond to uh, uh, treatment uh, with uh, radiotherapy. And so that has also uh, led us to look into these aspects a bit more to understand uh, how 
they were contributing or not uh, to cancer. Yep. Go ahead, you were. I can I can continue forever. <laughs> sorry. No, no. I mean, is this well, is, is it, so, uh, we, Sorry, go ahead. Is this what you are focusing then uh, right now more in in your uh, lab? So not not trying to maybe find new uh, histone chaperones for for new variants, but looking more into the cancer direction. There's this is one aspect uh, that we are very interested in uh, this cancer direction, and for several reasons. So there's this aspect that I was mentioning with respect to Senpe, but also with the H3 variant, uh, there has been these uh, uh, exciting times when people started to uh, identify a mutation in uh, H3 variant associated with pediatric cancer, uh, uh, aggressive ones, and then in other type of cancers as well. So the, the question is now uh, to try to better understand how this is contributing to, to the process uh, in a normal situation and when you deviate from the normal situation and engage into tumorigenesis. And so this is one aspect we, we are really uh, um, interested in uh, from different aspects, both in uh, understanding how it works uh, uh, and uh, also uh, to try to have perhaps tools uh, that could be useful to identify in uh, diagnosis uh, uh, typical uh, markers that can uh, help to guide uh, the way you want to treat one cancer or another. And uh, being at Curie uh, in this uh, respect has been really very, very nice because uh, Curie has a, a hospital uh, dedicated to cancer. And so we have the possibility of interacting uh, with a really um, uh, specialist in uh, clinical uh, oncology and access to uh, um, databases uh, from patients to look into uh, this area. And so that's uh, an aspect we have also been working on quite a lot and also with other people outside, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> of course. I miss is the fact that HSERP and the centromeric proteins overexpressed in those aggressive cancers is this due to the need for the cells to make more histones because the cancer are really aggressive and they replicate so much and the cell division is really going fast? I like that you say that because naively is what anybody would say. You say, well, um, it's logical. Um, higher proliferation would uh, be linked with a high need of uh, factors that are important for uh, cell division. And uh, these would be the case. But uh, it's not just that. And so uh, I, I think that uh, there's more to it, and we are finding some uh, amazing uh, um, things uh, with respect to properties uh, of uh, Senpe, for example, uh, and that in the context of uh, different types of uh, genetic background can contribute to direct cell fate. And this is actually uh, a very exciting thing that we are really uh, onto just now. <laughs> So something that will come out in the future. So we are yes, uh, indeed. <laughs> we hope. We are, yeah. So to finish off this interview, I have two more ge rather general questions. The first one is: uh, Did you at one point of your career face the situation where you reached a dead end, or maybe did not exactly know where to go or what to do um, to move forward? 
I think this is something that we face every day. There's always <laughs> something that uh, doesn't work uh, because that's how uh, um, experiment and science uh, is uh, functioning. But then you have uh, to uh, look at things and what they teach you. So uh, you start uh, thinking uh, um, this may be the kind of results that you may get. You don't get it fine it means something else yeah. and so the question is what does it mean and that can take you to uh unexpected uh avenues and i think this this is the again the beauty of science to go to the unexpected and fun part of it so, so i think uh, uh well i think that our failures are our success if we use them uh to uh, uh jump on it <laughs> yeah, to improve yeah so in the last 33 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Uh, can you maybe give a short summary about your, in your view, most important finding or something that we might have missed in this interview and that just didn't get from your numerous publications? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think that we've covered uh, quite a bit. Uh, I think uh, uh, the, the work that we've done with the histone variant connection with uh, replication and uh, also the cancer aspect that you raised has been something uh, I, I really uh, liked very much. But there's one thing uh, which uh, I, I'd like to stress, which was also a lot of fun. So that was uh, in a collaboration that we had uh, with uh, Thomas Jenuwein at the time. And uh, in that case, uh, and I think we were probably among the first to uh, put that forward, it was uh, at the time we were looking at pericentric heterochromatin with Christelle Maison in my lab, and uh, she found that uh, there was uh, an importance of RNA in uh, the organization of pericentric heterochromatin. And uh, this RNA connection uh, with the organization of chromatin and histone marks has been also a very exciting aspect of the work we, we had in the lab. And yeah, I think uh, I had a great fun uh, interacting with Thomas on the SUV39 enzyme uh, and uh, RNA uh, connection as well. And there will be more to it as well <laughs> in the future. <laughs> so this is why I just raise it. Yeah. <laughs> just just teasing, teasing the audience and, and uh, saying that look out for our work. So that's great. So thank you, Shenyevev, for your time and being on the show. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. This was the 31st episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all of your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotive.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motive blog, Motivations, at activemotive.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.